Well, hello, it is great to see you. So glad you're here today. Hey, we got some snow. I guess it really is winter, so that's exciting. Hey, uh, welcome also to those of you who are joining us from our campuses and watching online. Today, we get to wrap up this short two-part series called Resolve. And uh, I wanna start by asking you a question. When's the last time that you were in a situation where you just didn't know how to act. Like you didn't know what to say, you didn't know what to do. Maybe it was just a confusing situation, maybe it was a complicated situation, but you didn't know what to do. So uh, a while back, I was in a situation like this, okay? Uh, I, w I had the job of driving my daughter's homecoming party around. I'm telling you, picture me, driving my Toyota Highlander with seven 14-year-old girls in fancy dresses. I mean, there's few times in my life that I've felt that out of place. I was nervous, you know, in thinking about, you know, preparing for this event. I'm like, what do I wear to something like this? Do I dress fancy? I don't know. What do I say? Do I introduce myself? No, I probably shouldn't. I mean, I don't know. If you have a teenage daughter, you know that everything you say is dumb. So I thought... I'm just gonna say nothing. I'm gonna be invisible. That's what I'm gonna do. Do I play music? What kind of music? What do they listen to? I'm pretty sure my 90s alternative rock playlist is not gonna play in this situation. I mean, I, there have been few times in my life that I felt that out of place. And I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good at knowing how to act in social situations, reading the room. I mean, for crying out loud, I was a youth pastor for 15 years. But I'm telling you, seven teenage girls, that's, that's a whole different deal. So I wonder, when's the last time that you were in a situation like that where you didn't know how to act, how to function, because maybe it was confusing, maybe it was complicated. And the thing is, situations like that in our lives, sometimes they're funny, and sometimes they're not. And it could be that you find yourself in complicated space right now that's, that's just very, very confusing, and you're unsure how to move forward. Well, we're going to take a look at a story from the scriptures today uh, of a time when God's people were in very confusing and complicated space. And the story comes from the book of Esther. Now, uh, the book of Esther, way back in the Old Testament, and uh, it feels to me like jumping into the book of Esther for just one sermon, it, it's kind of like jumping into the middle of a movie and trying to figure out what's going on. So you sit down, you're watching, you're like, well, who's that? And where are they? And why is Thor fat? It's like, if you, if you don't have some context, if you don't have some background, you're just gonna be lost. So let's do this. Let's take a few moments and let's talk about what's going on in the book of Esther so that we're all on the same page so that we can really take in this story. So we'll do this just by answering some questions. We'll start with uh, who? Who is in this story? Uh, three characters you gotta know about right out of the gate. You have Esther, Mordecai, and Xerxes. Okay, Esther and Mordecai, they are cousins. They're Jewish cousins. Uh, but Mordecai, I think he's quite a bit older because he has raised Esther. Esther was orphaned as a young girl. So that's Esther and Mordecai. And then you have this guy, Xerxes, who uh, actually, King Xerxes. He's like the king of the entire 
Persian Empire. He's a big deal. He's a powerful guy. Now, you may have heard this name before, King Xerxes, especially if you saw the movie 300. Uh, but this is probably not what Xerxes actually looked like. Hollywood has taken some liberties, if you can believe it. Uh, this is a um, relief of Xerxes. So uh, he had a beard, I think, and he was made of stone. That was a terrible joke. Didn't work last night either. Okay, uh, where does this story take place? This story takes place in uh, the city of Susa. Susa was one of the capitals of the Persian Empire. And we actually know where it was because we have the archeological ruins. So here's a picture, just some of the ruins of ancient Susa. Uh, modern day Iran is where this city was. Now uh, an artist uh, built this model, which I think is pretty cool of what Susa might've looked like based on what we know. So big city, ancient city. And uh, here's a map showing where it was in relation to Israel. And so the question is, um, what were God's people who were supposed to be living in the promised land, what were they doing way uh, far away in Susa? So another question we have to answer for context of this story is the question where, or sorry, why? Why were God's people living all the way in Susa? And it's something that we call the exile because what happened is that the Babylonian empire swept through the land of Israel, conquered everything, and then forcibly deported a whole bunch of the ancient Jews to the east, to places like Babylon and then eventually Susa. So that's why there are so many ancient Jewish people living in cities way to the east. Now imagine, imagine being God's people, being an Israelite, living in a place like Susa. I mean, you want to talk about confusing and complicated space. This is different language, different customs, different food, different religion. And these ancient Israelites were trying to figure out how do we follow God? How do we stay faithful to our scriptures in this very different, complicated environment? And so we'll get to see how Mordecai and Esther navigate this space. Two more questions for context. When, in case you're curious, 4-500 BC. So about 500 years before the time of Jesus. And then lastly, what? We gotta understand what was going on leading up to the events that we're gonna be talking about. So here it is. King Xerxes, he has just deposed his queen. He got angry with his queen and he like fired her, divorced her. He got rid of his queen. Now. He wants a new queen. And so what he does is he organizes an empire-wide contest. Basically, he has his government bring to him hundreds, maybe thousands of attractive young women. He brings them into his harem. And there's this contest involving an entire year of beauty treatments and then one night with the king. And whoever he likes the best, that will be his new queen. And if you're thinking, well, that's pretty messed up, that's pretty ugly, I agree. It, it is messed up, it, it's, it's wrong, but, but this is the kind of thing that happened in ancient Susa. So how does this relate to Mordecai and Esther? Well, Esther was actually pulled into this empire-wide beauty contest, and actually Esther won this beauty contest. She becomes the next queen 
of Persia. And so it's incredibly complicated, confusing, in some cases, hostile space for God's people. And we get to watch how Mordecai and Esther navigate this. Now, I think this could be a really, really helpful conversation for us today. Because I know that many of us find ourselves in confusing and complicated space right now. And I wonder what that space looks like in your life. And maybe you would just say, you know what, it's not that different from them. Because they were in a culture that seemed very hostile to faith. And maybe you feel like our culture is just changing in a way that, that's making it more and more hostile to your faith. And so you feel the complexity of our culture. Or, or maybe for you, it's politics. You know, we got this election year. This is a big, important year for our country. But it's complicated, especially when you think about politics and the relationships, the friendships that you have in your life. Because, you know, your parents are over here politically. And your friends are over here politically. And then there's people you respect that have this opinion. And then there's how your faith ought to influence what you think politically and how you vote. And it can all be pretty confusing and complex, especially as you try to navigate relationships. Maybe the confusing space in your life is your college campus. I mean, it's just very different than what you grew up with. Maybe it's your family. I mean, you look up complex in the dictionary and boom, there's your family. <laughs> and maybe you just go, yeah, it's really hard right now to navigate relationships in my family. Whatever it is, I believe that the example of Mordecai and Esther are gonna provide us with just a great challenge, some really good questions to wrestle with as we talk about confusing and complicated space in our lives. So let's jump into the story. The story's got three parts, and the first part is all about choices because the choices that we make in complex space and confusing space, just really, really important. So um, if you wanna follow along in your own Bible, uh, we're gonna be all over the book of Esther, uh, but we're gonna start in chapter two, verse 21, it starts like this. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Now let's just stop right there. I wanna show you again this picture uh, from before circled this spot right here because uh, the, this area over here, I think, is like uh, Xerxes' palace complex. And again, this is a fictional picture, but it gives you a good idea. And you couldn't just waltz in to where the king lived. There was a gate and there were guards. And, and Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate. And you couldn't just hang out there. I mean, that wasn't allowed. So I get the impression that Mordecai works for the king. He's maybe a guard or a clerk or an official of some type working for the king. And so he's hanging out. I think he's working at this gate and he overhears something. He overhears something that he's not supposed to hear. And this is all going to lead him to an important choice, a decision that he has to make. So during the time that Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Thana, that is just some kind of name. Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, doorway became angry and they conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. So Mordecai, he overhears an assassination plot. And it's like, what do you, what do, you do with information like that? Now, my first thought is Xerxes should have known better. 
I mean, you hire a guy named Big Fana. It's like, what do you think is going to happen? I, I have a lot of questions about this guy's name. I confess, I was stuck on this for a long time this week. It's like, was his name just Thana? And then he became Big Thana? Or, okay, it's not helpful. So Mordecai, he overhears this assassination plot. And again, what do you, what do, you do with this? Because put yourself in Mordecai's shoes. I mean, there is, one way to look at this is, you know what, this could be good. If this pagan king that rules over us, if he were to, you know, go away at the hands of his own military, that wouldn't be so bad. I mean, this could lead to some opportunity for Mordecai's people to maybe become independent again. So if, if I'm Mordecai, it's like, maybe just hold that information. Just let this ride out and see how it plays out for your people. But that's not what Mordecai does. We read a little further, but Mordecai found out about the plot and he told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And so this plot to assassinate the king, it's thwarted, these guys are arrested. And so it's like, well, maybe, maybe Mordecai decided there was more benefit in telling the king. You know, because it doesn't hurt anything to be on the king's good side. To have him owe you one for saving his life, I mean, that could work out pretty well for Mordecai and his people. So maybe that's why he chose what he did. But actually, I think what's driving Mordecai's decision here is actually something else entirely. I think Mordecai is very much motivated by what God thinks about this decision. Because God has already made it very clear to his people living in exile how he wants them to handle decisions like this. And the reason I think this is because God spoke to his people living in exile through a prophet, a prophet by the name of Jeremiah. And we have a letter recorded for us in the book of Jeremiah where God speaks to his people living in exile. I just want to show you just a little bit of this letter. It goes like this. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And then here's just a little piece of the letter. He says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. God gives clear instructions to his people. Seek the peace and prosperity. No, seek their well-being. It's, 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 it's this element of being God's people that God's design the entire time was that they would be a light, that they would be a city on a hill, that they would bless the people around them, that when others interact with them, they would just go, there's something different about this people. And it's like God is saying, I want you to be that kind of people, even in faraway exile. So assassination plots, that's out. <laughs> Sabotage, no, we're not going to do that. Rebellion, no, I want you to seek their well-being. Pray for them. Seek their prosperity. And so for Mordecai, I don't think this was much of a decision because he had the wisdom to ask this important question. What does God think about this? And I'm telling you, when you're in confusing space, when you're in complicated space, to ask this question, and even more important, I think, to ask this question before you make a decision it is so helpful in making good, God-honoring, life-giving decisions that are going to lead you to become the person that you want to be. 
just question, what does God think about this? And to ask it before you make a decision. And the problem is, is so often we get the order backwards. You feel this? It's like we get the order wrong. We have this tendency to ask, I wonder what God thinks about this after we've already made a decision. I wonder what God thinks about the text I sent. I wonder what God thinks about the loan I just took out. I wonder what God thinks about how we moved in together. I wonder what God thinks about the college I already chose. I just know from personal experience, some of the mistakes I've made, the bad decisions, the regrettable choices that I've made, so often I got the order wrong. Decisions I made back in the day, dating decisions, financial decisions. Like I made a choice based on what I was feeling, based on what I wanted, and then later I would go, oh, I wonder what God thinks about that. And often I'd have to go back, fix something, apologize. See, what happens is so often we let our emotions and what we want drive our decision-making. And what we end up doing is we allow our emotions and our desires to interpret what God has said. We go, well, maybe that was for them and not so much for me. Because, I mean, that's really old. We allow our emotions to interpret God's truth instead of inviting God's truth to interpret our emotions and our desires. That's what we really need to do. So Mordecai, he gives us this powerful example. And I just wonder, what decision are you facing right now? And what choices do you have before you? And could I challenge you to consider the example of Mordecai and to slow down your decision making and just pause and go, I, I wonder what God thinks about this. What, what does God think about this? And let God's truth interpret your feelings and your desires so that you can make good, God-honoring decisions. But we just got to acknowledge this, this is not easy. It can be scary. Because what if what God thinks goes against what you want? What if what God thinks goes against what you desire? I mean, what if what God thinks would lead you to a place that's, that feels, well, a little scary. It feels like you're taking a risk. And my friends, that's part of what Mordecai is going to experience as well. That sometimes choosing to listen to God and follow his way, it can feel a little risky, especially when you're living in a culture that can be hostile to faith. And so let's see how this plays out for Mordecai. We're going to jump ahead to chapter 3 here. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than any, higher than that of all the other nobles. So there's a new character in the story. His name is Haman, and this guy is powerful, and this guy is prideful, and this guy is dangerous. He is very close with King Xerxes. Now, a character like this, 
you're going to want to show respect. So all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman. For the king had commanded this concerning him, but Mordecai, Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Mordecai refuses to bow. And it's like, ah, dude, why would you take that risk? I mean, it doesn't seem worth it. This guy is powerful. He's dangerous. He's tight with the king. You don't need to do that. Just bow down, man. But Mordecai, again, I think he's asking the question, what what does God think about this? I believe the reason he doesn't bow is because he remembers this command that God gave his people. You shall have no other gods before me. And Mordecai is just going, look, and you're asking me to elevate a man to the status of God, and I won't do it. He refuses to bow. And sometimes when you do what's right and when you honor God, there are risks involved. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Haman He doesn't want to just kill Mordecai. He wants to kill every last Jew in the entire empire. The idea in his head is like an ancient holocaust. And again, this guy, he's, he's in tight with Xerxes. And so what he does is he goes to the king and he convinces him that the Jewish people are, are a menace. They're bad for the empire. And Xerxes buys this. And so he signs a decree setting a specific date not far in the future where Mordecai will be executed and every Jew in the empire will also be executed. And so this this is bad. This has become not only a confusing and complicated situation, but a dangerous situation. And it brings us to part two of the story, uh, which is all about perspective. So... For Mordecai and the Jewish people, this is bad. This is dangerous, but Mordecai has a plan. And his plan involves Esther because he's going, Esther has position. I mean, she's married to the king. She can use her position to plead with the king and save her people. And so what he does is he sends a message Uh, He sends a messenger to uh, Esther with these instructions. Go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. That's what he tells her to do. You got to go to the king. You got to plead with him. And you got to convince him not to kill all of our people. Esther, use your position to save your people. But we just need to pause for a second here. And we just need to think for a minute and talk about Esther's position. Because the position that she has, the position that she's in, I mean, it is incredibly complicated. So here's the deal. Esther, she's a Jewish young woman. She is one of God's chosen people. And yet she's married to a guy who doesn't know or follow the God of Israel. In fact, he's the the head of a pagan empire. Esther is the queen of a pagan empire empire. And this whole time, she's kept her identity a secret. 
Not even Xerxes knows that she's Jewish. And it's kind of like, is that even okay? But you know what? It's even more complicated than that. Because if you just step back and go like, wait a second, how did she get in this position? It's pretty ugly. I mean, this whole competition, beauty contest, this beauty treatments for a year, one night with the king, she wins. I mean, should she have even gone along with this? It's pretty messed up. It's pretty ugly. Isn't there a party that just goes, you know what, Esther, I think you should have refused to be a part of this. Because here you got Mordecai. He refuses to even bow down. And Esther, she just goes along with this whole ugly affair. I mean, what's up with this? Even if it meant jail, even if it meant execution, shouldn't she have said, no, it's wrong. I will not participate. But you know what? It's way more complicated than that. Because power dynamics here. I mean, Xerxes, he is the most powerful man in the world. He's head of the most powerful empire in the world. And who's Esther? Esther is a nobody orphan girl. I mean, how could she have refused? How could she have, have said no to this? And so all I'm saying is that the position that Esther is in is very, very complicated and confusing. And I wonder if you can relate just a little bit. I mean, I wonder if you can relate thinking about your life, where you are, and who you are. Is there part of you that just go, yeah, it's, it's complicated. Because who you are and where you are, I mean, it is a mix of some really good, wise choices that you made along the way. And who you are and where you are, it's a mix of really bad, selfish decisions that you made along the way, right? And where you are today has something to do with people in your life who are really good to you, who encouraged you, who believed in you, who blessed you, who invested in you. And where you are in life has something to do with some people in your life who hurt you, who wounded you, who betrayed you. I'm just saying, when we look at our lives and where we are and who we are, it's complicated. It is a little confusing. But here's what's so powerful about this story. is that God is using Mordecai to talk to Esther. Esther, you gotta step up. You gotta use your position. God is beginning to move in this story, and what's so powerful for her and what's so powerful for us is this truth right here. Wherever you are and however you got there, God is at work in you and he's at work around you. Wherever you are, it does not matter how you got there, good, bad, ugly, God is still at work in and around you. I guess what I wanna say is it's not over. It wasn't over for Esther, and it's not over for you because God is at work. And so can I ask you, where are you at right now? I mean, where are you at with your career? And I know some of you would say, well, not where I want to be. Anyone feel underemployed? This isn't what I went to school for. Anyone feel like you're part of an organization that the way, the, dire the direction the organization is moving, you're, you're not terribly comfortable with it. Where are you at right now? Not where I want to be. 
some of you are coming out of a season where you just have a lot of regrets. You made some dumb calls and you are living with significant consequences. And I just want to tell you, wherever you are, however you got there, God is at work in you and he's at work around you. Uh, Some of you were married. The word widow, you always thought that sounds like old people. And you cannot believe that that's the technical term that applies to you. Some of you were married. Divorce is never what you wanted. It's never what you imagined. And can I tell you, wherever you are, And however you got there, God is at work in you, and he's at work around you. It's not done. He's not done with you. The story is not over. This is the beautiful picture that we get from the book of Esther. Should she have been in this position? I don't know. It's so complicated. But we do know that God is at work in her and around her. And the question is, how will she respond? And it's the same question for you. How will you respond to what God is doing in your life? And the truth is, Esther is wrestling. She's wrestling. She's not sure. Because Mordecai, he sends this message to her, and her response is not entirely positive. She says, do not think, oh, I skipped one. She says, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, The king has but one law, that they be put to death, unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. She is wrestling with this. She goes, look, Mordecai, you don't understand. You can't just waltz into the king's presence. People die doing that. And me, he hasn't even called for me in 30 days, a month. I think she feels like she's fallen out of grace with the king. And look, he's already deposed one king or one queen. And so she's just going, look, it's not worth it. It's too risky. She's wrestling with this movement of God in and around her. And Mordecai responds. He sent this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. But who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. These are some of the most famous words in the book of Esther. It's like, What if you are in this place for this moment? Esther, what if God wants to use you to save his people? This is so powerful because what's true for her and what's true of us is it's not just that God is at work in and around you, but also he wants to use you. So another phrase just added to this uh, statement, wherever you are and however you got there, God is at work in and around you and he wants to use you. And I hope you believe that. Because what's so true about confusing and complicated space and some of the 
pain that we've been through is God can use that very pain. God can use the very mistakes that you've, that you've made. He can redeem these things and use you. You know, I was talking to somebody recently who's traveling through uh, addiction recovery. And this person told me that one of the most powerful voices in their life right now is a, an older person who walked through addiction recovery. God is using their, the mistakes that they made to encourage and challenge and bless somebody that's in the fight. God wants to use you. He can use your mistakes. He can use your pain and your heartache. I know another couple who lost a baby. And I, I mean, I can't even imagine. That it just feels like the worst possible thing to go through. I can't imagine the pain. But a couple years beyond that tragedy, God is using this couple to come alongside other couples who have experienced loss, to encourage, to support, and just to be somebody. Hey, we, we have been there. We understand. God can use even your pain, even your mistakes. Oh, I, just, I just want you to believe this, that wherever you are and however you got there, God's at work in you, he's at work around you, and he wants to use you. This is part of Esther's story. And Esther's ready to step up, and she's ready to step into what God is doing and how God wants to use her. And it brings us to the final part of this story, sacrifice. And so last, uh, last scripture we're going to look at here. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go. Gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. She is willing to sacrifice her position. She is willing to sacrifice her life to save her people. And what happens is she goes to the king. And instead of having her executed, he extends the golden scepter and he listens to her. And in time, she reveals Haman's plot. And the king is appalled. And there's this great reversal because instead of executing Mordecai, instead of wiping out the Jews, he executes Haman and elevates Mordecai. It's just Wonderful reversal in the story of Esther. But what's so powerful about this story is not Esther's sacrifice, but what Esther's sacrifice points to. Or more specifically, who Esther's sacrifice points to. Because the example of Esther, she points to Jesus. What she was willing to do points to Jesus and finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus. Because Jesus, God's son, he did leave his position. And he did sacrifice his life for you and for me. And I'm telling you, as we talk about confusing space, complicated space, I, I just know that some of you are right there and you're not sure what to do. And I think the most important thing I could say to you today is that the answer is Jesus. 
the answer is Jesus who gave his life for you. And you need to trust Jesus. You need to put your trust in his sacrifice for you so that you can be forgiven of your sin, everything that you've ever done wrong, so that you can be restored to your creator, to have your relationship with God restored and and put back to the way it was supposed to be, so that you can receive God's very presence in your life to guide you and encourage you and remind you that if, if you are in Christ, you are his beloved child. The book of Esther is so powerful because it points to Jesus. 